Thank you for downloading this podcast to hear about women doing extraordinary things and empowering the future workforce in collaboration with the Antarctic Fire Angels. Welcome. It's fantastic to see some familiar faces and also many new faces this evening. My name is Dr. Sarah Louise Weller and it's my privilege to be your chair this evening. I'm Associate Director for Postgraduate Business and Management Programmes here at UE and my research interests focus on disaster volunteers and my findings have included the experiences of women in male-dominated sectors. And it's this work that's led me to meeting the Antarctic Fire Angels and this very exciting project. So I'm not going to say any more. It's my pleasure to hand over to Dan Wood, who is Chief People Officer at UWE, and he will formally welcome you. Um, so welcome, very warm welcome to the University of the West of England in Bristol. It's abs an absolute honour and pleasure to uh, see you all here this evening and to uh, introduce what is sure to be a really inspiring, really uh, thought-provoking uh, and hopefully a, uh, an evening during which we learn and take away a great deal into the rest of our lives. So. Um, I want to uh, just take a moment just to say a few words about our wonderful speakers this evening who each of them uh, have an impressive tale to tell about their own experiences uh, but also about the amazing achievements and work that they're doing to bring about change, change institutionally uh, and change in society and systemically uh, in order to bring about greater gender equity and uh, gender inclusion and gender justice and I think that is um, fantastic that you're all here with us this evening. So a huge thank you to you for, for doing this. Um, I want to uh, first of all say uh, welcome to colleagues from the Arctic Fire Angels. And we have uh, G Georgie with us um, and we also have Rebecca. Um, George and Rebecca, welcome. And, and we're really looking forward to hearing about your presentation and uh, the amazing uh, ex ex um, expedition, in fact, that you have uh, ahead of you, if I can get my words out this evening. Um, and uh, it's going to be wonderful to hear about how that will inspire um, generations and why you're doing it. I think it's the purpose and, uh, behind it that I'm really uh, learn wanting to learn about and listen to you this evening. So it will be wonderful to hear that from you. Uh, we've also got um, Professor Hazel Connolly from uh, here in UWE, uh, and it's really wonderful to have you with us. And I know your research interests are particularly located um, in, in this area as well. Uh, and um, you've done a, a great deal of work um, in terms of your research and impacts across different organisations, and we're really looking to uh, forward to hearing about that. Uh, and also uh, with us as well uh, this evening, Dr Barbara Brown. Um, and it's, it's wonderful to have you with us, and I know you've also done a lot of work in this area. Um, with lots of different organisations, director, non-exec director of different organisations, consultancy and change management and so on. So we're really looking forward to learning from those experiences, all of you bringing a great deal of wisdom into the room. Uh, and I shall sit there uh, slightly in awe of the, both the achievements uh, and, and the impacts that you've already had and seeing how uh, perhaps um, I can contribute a little of my own story in terms of being both chief people officer here in UWE um, I recently joined in February, in fact, so I'm learning a lot about uh, higher education and a lot about this organisation, but previous to that, having spent nine years in policing, uh, and beyond that, um, being uh, involved in the National Fire Chiefs Council, um, which I know, uh, having uh, seen the various reports in recent times, particularly uh, Nazir Afzal's report into the London Fire Br Brigade, 
um, and the uh, inspectorate's report around culture in the fire service, just how much work there is to do. Um, and, you know, there are some really quite shocking and um, difficult challenges that need to be overcome uh, in, in those sectors. And I think um, you know, making sure that we play our part and um, that particularly uh, men uh, and um, you know, people like me who consider ourselves to be allies uh, and supporters of gender equality actually really lean into the challenges that there are and do something about it, take appropriate action uh, in order to make a better society. Uh, and it's nowhere more important than in those sectors where we see underrepresentation and where we see um, examples of systemic inequality, um, you know, bullying, harassment and other things playing out, which is a deep injustice that needs to be uh, addressed in society. So um, without further ado, I'll invite you to uh, join me in giving the warmest welcome, please, um, to our first uh, speakers uh, this evening. And um, they are going to come and present to us. So please join us up front and give them a very, very warm welcome. So, hello everyone. Thank you so much for coming and listening to us this evening. We are the Antarctic Fire Angels. As you can see up there, it's myself and George. Um, and we are going on an expedition. On the 10th of November, we leave uh, Britain and we head to Chile and then on to Antarctica. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that um, a little bit later. But just to, um, sorry, next slide. Just to talk about myself and George, give us a bit of background. So, I'm Bex. Um, so I um, am in the Mid and West Wales Fire Service. Um, I was in the London Fire Service. I've spent uh, five years now as a firefighter. Previously, I was a secondary school teacher, uh, teaching PE and geography, the classics. And uh, before that, I was um, an international athlete in swimming, rugby, surf lifesaving and rowing. So um, yeah, I've spent a lot of time doing sport. That has been pretty much most of my life. Um, and then I found a bit of teaching and then my awesomest job, the fire brigade. George? <laughs> I'm George, as uh, Bex has introduced, and uh, I'm always amazed when I look at this picture how many filters are on this. <laughs> Apology, <laughs> the reality is so different. <laughs> yeah, so I'm George, I've been a firefighter for uh, 25 years. Um, I spent most of my professional career being a firefighter. I was uh, retained or on call before that as well. Um, before that, um, I have a, a, a background in uh, being a riding instructor, so I've always been in the equine industry for, since I was the age of four, basically, up until I joined the, the fire service. I don't have a sporting accolade as much as, as, as Beck, so I can't boast all that, and I won't bore you with the different random sports that I've done in my past anyway. But uh, yeah, so, uh, that, so that's me, and I'll hand you back to Bex. Okay, so our expedition is 1,130 kilometres, about 702 miles, I think, give or take. And here's a map of Antarctica. We start at a place called Hercules Inlet, and we will ski all the way to the South Pole, which is that distance of just over 700 miles. Um, next slide. And we will be skiing, just the two of us, so unguided, unsupported, unassisted. Um, we'll be skiing on, obviously, cross-country skis or Nordic skis. And we'll be carrying or dragging all of our possessions, our food, the fuel we need uh, to melt snow, spares, um, a bit of extra gear, uh, all our technology, everything in our sleds that we have uh, behind us. And they will probably weigh around 85 kilos, we think, which we basically will be pulling, well, my body weight, a bit heavier than yours, pretty much, isn't it? Yeah, there's 12 yeah. kilos between us. So we'll be dragging everything behind <laughs> us. Yeah. <laughs> 
right. <laughs> so that is, that's basically our house. Our belongings are all in the back of our sled, and that's what we will be taking with us throughout our, our very long journey. Next slide. Um, so our expedition is a world's first, so no all emergency services team have ever been to Antarctica, let alone the, the route that we're doing. So um, we really hope to, obviously, hope to complete it, but I think just being in Antarctica and attempting it is going to be a big thing and a great thing for um, the fire service and emergency services as a whole. Next. So, do you want to talk about camp life? No. Oh. <laughs> so, so while we, and um, we have done this before, honest. So while we're in Antarctica, um, obviously our home is a tent. So we will live in a tent every single night. We will ski for 10 hours a day, and then we'll stop, put up our tent really as quick as we can. Usually we can do it in about five to 10 minutes now, um, which is really important because it's very cold. Um, can be really windy, we're going to be really tired and we need to get that house up as quick as we can so we can get the cooker on and start melting snow. So the only way that we can eat our freeze-dried... The only way we can eat our freeze-dried food is by melting snow to create water, which obviously we pour into our food. So we spend, uh, when we're not skiing and putting up our tent, we will spend most of the time, one of us, melting snow. And it will probably take... A couple of hours. So here's here's a bit of our camp life from a previous um, training expedition. It can take about one to two hours, depending on if it's our, the, the snow type. And there is many types of snow which we found out over our few years of training. Um, so it's quite it's quite difficult because we're going to be really hungry all the time, and then we've got to wait for two hours to eat our dinner. So it's going to I get very hungry, unfortunately for George. Um, so she'll be feeding me digestive biscuits because, funnily enough, chocolate digestives are the highest calorie, calorie biscuit and they travel quite well. So um, we'll be eating a lot of those along the way, lots and lots of those. Um, so as well, on, on camp life, um, obviously we sleep in our really warm sleeping bags. It's like basically a massive down jacket made into a sleeping bag. That's pretty much how I'd describe it. Um, on top of a couple of roll mats, pretty much which sounds crazy because we are sleeping on ice. Um, but it surprisingly, keeps you surprisingly warm, doesn't it, George? Um, and just sleep in our base layers, and that's it. And you are quite toasty most of the time, I think. Uh, maybe a hat, or uh, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, so once we stop and we've done our skiing and we put the tent up, one of us will be doing the cooking. cooking. Uh, one of us will be getting changed or sorting out the tent um, and then basically eating, getting everything done as quick as possible so we can rest because that is a huge thing. We need our rest because we are, like I said, on our feet, on our skis, 10 hours every day. We'll ski for 75 minutes, then we'll have a 10-minute break where we'll try and get some food in and some, some fuel, some water, sorry, and we'll continue that then for the 10, 10 hours. So resting and recovery is a huge part of our day because if we don't get enough, then we're really going to struggle to keep that, keep that um, routine up for uh, 10 hours every day and um, for 45 days, which is what we hope to complete our, our journey in. And what's on the menu today? Snow! Nikki, we got snow again! Yay! Yay. So exciting. Yeah, so our day is incredibly, um, it's, it's Groundhog Day, basically. So we work back from uh, eight hours eight hours of sleep, uh, six hours of rest slash cooking slash eating, 
and and then we spend 10 hours a day skiing so it, it is proper groundhog day and and that to mentally prepared for that uh, prepare for that we have to basically qualify to get to uh, antarctica so we have to go we have to jump through a lot of hoops but they are very enjoyable in the weirdest kind of way enjoyable hoops that you have to jump through and to to tick off all your training so um, if you're anything like uh, myself and Bex, who enjoy and have a good laugh out of feeling cold, hungry, uh, <laughs> all sorts of uh, tired, angry, hangry, all sorts of things like that. And then if you get at the end of the day, you can still laugh in the face of that, then you are the person to go and do something like this. So the cold training environment has been taken up with uh, Norway and Sweden. This particular video is is taken in in Norway so we went out there for 3 weeks so we're just coming to the end of day 12 10 hours of skiing a constant minus 10ish got to about minus 25 at night i've still got my black eye becky oh let me get you on screen there we are there's becky let me scooch forward to nikki Nikki Patricia! So I'm just explaining, we're coming to the end of day 12. Yeah. How cold it is, but you kind of get used to it. I'm freezing! <sighs> so yeah, yeah, I look like a ninja. Yeah, put your, put your glasses back on, definitely. <laughs> so, Bex is out in front. I'm just try and catch up with the ox. It's quite difficult. I have to get it to slow down, but she doesn't like slowing down very much. Especially when it's close to our supper time. Ox! Yeah, it's pretty nippy. You can see all the foxy ears frozen. All the frosty bits. Yeah. And up the nose and all sorts of stuff. But look where we are, absolutely stunning. Oh, the moon's out behind me. Absolutely stunning. Harsh environment, but beautiful. Yeah, brutal. Eight till six. Brutal days. <laughs> and we've all got Arctic coughs. Nice. Uh, yeah, so you can see some other members, past members of the team there. And uh, through circumstances, uh, Nikki, for example, got frostbite. So she had to get evacuated off Norway. So that was quite a big uh, learning straight vertical line for us. So unfortunately, she had to withdraw from the team because it makes her way more vulnerable um, if she were to go into a cold environment again. Um, yeah, so... That's how we've been training, and if uh, you're all thinking, you, you don't care now, you're just thinking about how I got my black eye, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> so it was the first week, and um, I'm I'm perimenopausal, and I, I was in my sleeping bag, and I was having a hot flush, and I thought, I'll just undo my zip. And who's been ever stuck in a sleeping bag with a zip has failed? Well, I thought, right, well, I need to get back in my bag now. So I started doing the zip up, and then I got really angry with it after a couple of minutes of it not moving. And then I got so angry with it, I yanked it like that. My hand slipped off the zip and I punched myself clean in the eye. And then I, I put my head, went right back like that, like proper punch. And then I laid on, on, on my bed thinking, why? <laughs> why? <laughs> why? And then, and then we were packing up the camp in the morning and she looked at me from across the tent and she went, have you got a black eye? I was like, do not talk to me about my black eye. I will t discuss it later in the tent. And she just went... Like that. There's a lot of eye rolling that goes on. So that's our cold weather. Um, I do believe this is a video, so if you have just click through this now.
So this is us uh, in Sweden, um, very different environment. There's a lot of pine trees there, and when you boil the snow, melt the snow for your water, it all tastes like pine tree. Um, so that's that's very delightful. Um, so this is us uh, very very quickly time lapse setting up setting up camp, and it's basically it uh, demonstrates the level of efficiency. So the quicker you are at getting your tent and all your equipment together, the quicker you can get in the tent, and the quicker you can get your food on, and the quicker you can get hot food into your system and start recovering from the ten hours of pulling. So, so this is us um, just completing it now. As you can see, it took us about 60 seconds to do that. No, not really. It takes about 10 minutes to set everything up if you're super slick. So you can imagine trying to do that with mittens on as well because we like to keep our fingers together so they all get mutual heat. So trying to do that with mittens on as well is actually quite, actually quite difficult. And if anybody knows somebody from Norway or anybody from Sweden, they don't like their verbs very much and, and they just tell you, to, it's just you literally communicate in grunts and clicks. And uh, we did actually get that down to a fine art in the end. It is literally having an eyeball conversation with the person across from you, and they know exactly what to do. It's weird. <laughs> okay, next one. Um, so, uh, so in all our training, we have deliberately gone out to seek the worst conditions that we can possibly find. And even with all that training, still nothing would ever prepare you for Antarctica. You only get prepared for Antarctica when you're on Antarctica, and unfortunately it costs an awful lot of money to get there. So we have to simulate it as much as we can, and sometimes the weather is very kind to us, and it throws the most ridiculous storm at us. So, do you want to play the video? you don't see there is literally about one second after that, we all get blown over like Skittles. Uh, so we had to do that, it's a bit embarrassing. No. So uh, that particular storm, uh, it was funneling down a, a valley and we deliberately headed into that and navigation is extremely hard in that particular environment. Um, and also staying upright is very, very hard when you've got your house behind you trying to drag you backwards as well. And it was uphill. And I think, do you believe the winds in that were about 30 meters per second? Which is, the, it's in the UK, that's the equivalent of um, quite large trees coming down. So in the UK, you probably wouldn't take your dog for a walk in a, in a, in a storm like that because you'd be thinking of branches coming down. Yeah, you'd lose the dog. The dog would be flapping around like a like a like a like a flag around you, especially if you've got one of our dogs, which is like Yeah, so we we were we were lucky slash unlucky. But what was really, really telling in that particular storm is that we started at like eight o'clock in the morning and we couldn't do our first uh toilet stop until about five hours into that storm. So we were five hours trekking up into the storm. As soon as we turned out of the valley we had a bit more protection, in which case we all and then all of a sudden we all went I need the toilet. <laughs> so and then that so that was that was quite a tricky situation as well because it was still very very windy and if anybody's ever had snow in their pants it's uncomfortable. And cold. Yes, and you don't quite recover from it and then you start thinking, "Oh god, I need to dry these out." And you can't. 
So obviously we do not live in a cold country and we don't have snow very often, if ever. So a lot of our training is obviously based here um, and around our local area. So uh, we have got quite inventive with our training, uh, especially during COVID because we couldn't go out of the country. Um, so here's uh, just, we spend most of our time uh, tire dragging and looking very, very weird. So here's, that's myself with my two little dogs, <laughs> George and Dottie. They weren't really pulling the tire, it's just, it's not, not dog abuse, don't call the RSPCA. Um, yeah, so we spend most of our time dragging tires around. Um, like I said, looking very strange. We've had some interesting comments through the years, haven't we? Like, where's your car? You look tired. Um, someone asked me once if I was dragging a dead dog, which I find very strange thing to ask. Um, yeah, so, um, but it does attract great attention and people want to speak to us and ask us, you know, what, what are you doing and why are you doing it? So, which is great because um, we get to then speak to people about what we're doing. So as well as dragging tires around looking strange, um, there's George um, on a ski machine. So obviously ski ergs are really great for us. Um, so if you just play this video. So we spend a lot of time in the gym as well. So we do a lot of strength training um, to make our bodies really robust because I think a big thing that uh, we're both probably worried about or me more so is injuries. So we don't want to get too many injuries while we're out in Antarctica because obviously that's going to hinder our progress. And it's just painful. And when you're carrying an injury day in, day out, having to ski for 10 hours, it's not, not enjoyable. It's going to be difficult enough as it is. So we try and do a lot of gym work um, to make our bodies robust tire dragging, running with weighted packs up and down hills as well. So a little bit like army training, military training. Um, I do a bit of swimming. George has um, been doing a bit of rowing recently, actually. Um, and we also started skiing on the sand. So myself and George, um, well, when George lived near me, we lived near a massive area of sand hills called Mothmaur Sand Dunes. And there's a huge sand hill called the Big Dipper. And we would ski, basically use our skis, ski up it, ski up it, and then ski down. And we did actually move on the way down, didn't we? Um, but great training for just interval reps going up and down and just having skis on because uh, myself and George are not skiers. I still wouldn't class us as skiers. And we had to learn to ski uh, four years ago when we started this project because we'd never skied, myself and George. And um, it was very amusing learning to Nordic ski. It's very different to downhill skiing, um, still very hard. And we spent a lot of time on the floor, didn't we? A lot of time on the floor. And we still do spend quite a bit of time on the floor, falling over just randomly. It's completely flat. We're skiing along. Boom, we're gone. I, I don't even know how it happens. Um, so um, we've had to learn a lot of new skills. Um, as well as skiing, we were complete novices at any of this. Uh, you know, we've never done proper expeditions, never done a polar expedition. So we had to learn how to survive in a cold environment how to put a tent up in snow and ice, not something you do every day, um, how to cook in the tent and not burn it down, which we've al almost done, which I've almost done a few times. Um, so we had a lot of things to learn. Navigation, another big thing we had to learn. Um, and then things as well like fundraising, social media, public speaking. It's been a whole array of, of um things and skills that we've had to learn over the last four years um which has been great really great for us and i think we've really grown as um as people as well so we go to the next slide so the why so why are we doing this is the big is the big question i think uh, i mean one thing is we're crazy that's probably not a question that is it, isn't it 
one thing is that, um, yeah, we enjoy a challenge, I think, between us. I think you have to be that way to want to do something like this. Um, but to what we're doing, yes, it's huge, it's massive, um, but it's just the attention grabber for us. You know, we need to do something big um, in order for people to turn around and look at us and listen to us and, and follow us and things. Um, so if we go to the next. So obviously we're both firefighters, we're women, and we want to be visible role models. And in the fire service at the moment, I think there's only 7 or 8% um, of the whole of fire service, operational firefighters that are women, which is tiny, tiny percentage. Um, and it's going to take a long time to change that, but we want to be part of changing that and becoming more visible for women and, and men in general. Um, I know when I, when I was starting out in the fire service and I got through the application process and I was about to go for my training course, I wanted to know what other female firefighters did just generally. So I went on social media, I looked around, and I really struggled to find any female firefighters, you know, just see what they did day in, day out, or, you know, who are they? Who are these people that are female firefighters? And I really struggled to find anyone. And I think that's terrible, you know, I've only been in the fire service just over five years, so, you know, in this day and age, I thought that's awful. And I think, you know, for us, we want to try and change that and be more visible, and so people can see what female firefighters do. We are just normal people doing a job that, you know, many women don't do but it is a job that women can do so we want to be really visible for people and for everyone to see and also you know we're in massively male dominated role like I said uh, you know seven eight percent of women are actually firefighters so it's hugely male dominated um, and yes we want to try and change that will it ever be 50 50 I don't know but we need to keep pushing and pushing for people to realize it is a job that women can can do you know the society is massively diverse so you need a diverse workforce and that's what we're hoping to try and push as well um, along the way yeah so just carry on from what Bex was saying I mean our strap line is you can't be what you can't what you can't see and what a lot of young girls, young women, women of my age, women that, that are older than me, they just don't see themselves represented in the in the in the workplace at all. And by hopefully by being visible role models, we you know we're just sparking that change and that inspiration to for somebody to you know actively change that for themselves and the people that they work with as well. So it, that. It the, the, the next two paragraphs speak for themselves, really. The lack of inclusion, ever-lingering presence of gender stereotyping is inherently linked to low mental health. So we can imagine if we didn't have these gender biases going on, if we didn't discriminate against people, and how, how included and valued everybody would feel if they are... Um, if they are listened to, if they are heard, if they are valued for everything that they have to say, whether it's... As firefighters, we're, we're we're at the bottom of the ladder. We're firefighters, um, all the way through to the top. So I've always maintained that you need good people pushing down as well as good people pushing up as well. So it's not only the people at the top that need to that are change makers. It's also the people at the bottom of the ladder as well that can affect change. Yeah, and it's basically getting that message out there is doing something 
ridiculous, like Antarctica, let's face it, it's ridiculous at what the attention that we've had to try and grab in order for people to stand up and companies to stand up and say, I'm really valuing in what, what, you're, what you're saying and what you're doing here. And I can't believe that you've actually had to, you're risking your lives, basically. And you know we're going to miss our families and our dogs, especially that, and on our friends and things um, that we're doing this in order to get a message across. When I first joined the fire service all those years ago, I came in under the stigma of you only got this job because you're a woman. And even though I passed all the same criteria, um, I, I passed everything. Um, you know, I didn't get the silver axe, unfortunately, but there we go, went to a man, there we go, same old story, but um, yeah, it's, I, you only got this job, it's like working with my wife, and, and then four years after hideously trying to prove myself to these men that I was good enough to be working, well, I felt like I was working for them and not with them, and then one of them came up to me um, privately and then said, oh, I'm, I'm actually okay with working with women now, I think I'm all right with it, you know, and I, I'm like, Thanks, I got your approval, I, you know, brilliant. So I, I spent, I'm ashamed to say I spent four years basically, you know, trying to smash my way through gender stereotyping and trying to prove myself that I was good enough to do this job when all along I was actually good enough to do this job because I passed all the criteria exactly the same as the men. I even got blamed for reducing the standard of the fitness test coming in to the fire service even though that actually happened after I'd come in. So you can imagine when you constantly hear this every single day, how it grinds you down. So that's exactly why, why we're doing it. And you know, look, and, and how great would it be when everyone feels included and they feel empowered and motivated to contribute to uh, decision making. For so often, we have men making decisions on behalf of women, and it is still happening now. 2023, we're still having these conversations. I it's not gonna happen in my lifetime, but I would like to think maybe in your lifetime, um, that maybe one day you can stand up and go, we don't need to have things like this anymore. We don't need to have conferences that empower women because we are there, we've achieved it. Yeah, and we're 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 fifty fifty across our workforce, and we're all valued and 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 empowered to do so. So anyway, that's my soapbox. Sorry. Okay, next slide. Okay, so this is part of our why, why we're doing it. So we engage through you. Uh, we've actually engaged with over ten thousand children um, over over the last uh, over the last four years, and and with UWE as well. So and this is why we do it. Girls' rights in Wales. We did a talk uh, at the at the centre. That's me talking at the uh, Welsh Assembly, talking to uh, young students about uh, female empowerment. Um, and Beck's talking to some of her uh, yeah, local school children, things like that, taking the equipment in, because we also work, uh, we also address uh, topics like STEM as well, and STEM is a hideously um, underrepresented um, profession, and why we seem to lose teenage girls at a certain age, because they don't think it's cool or trendy and things like that, and then, um, unfortunately in life, it's probably a bit late for them to go back to that, so we seem to be losing teenage girls at a certain age, and unfortunately, probably social media's got a lot to do with that. 
Okay, so some of these uh, these are just uh, snippets of some of the cards that have been returned to us when we did some um, we did some schools with UE um, a, a few months ago. There's some brilliant brilliant little captions on there, and um, the the video on the right hand side is just me flicking through some letters that we get from school kids and stuff. And uh, I mean, we talk about the expedition. Kids love kids love uh, poo and how you go to the toilet and uh, and things like that. And most of the most of them actually call, you know, th one of one of the kids actually said, um, uh, "I'm really uh, really excited to know about what food you eat, but if you don't like any of your food, then you probably need to cook better." And so that that was that was quite that was quite funny. So these are some of the cards that that we get, and it's all about future generations, uh, basically. Okay, next slide. Okay, it's just me flicking through all the letters that we get, which are just amazing. And handwritten as well. How rare is it to get something that's handwritten from, from a child these days, right? Okay, next slide. Okay, so uh, this is a bit of a begging slide. Okay, so we can, at the moment, um, we can, uh, we, we're, we're heading to the South Pole, but we're still fundraising for our flights home. This is a twin otter plane. It's tiny. And we're still fundraising for our flights back from the South Pole, back to Union Glacier. And Union Glacier is the airport on Antarctica. So um, at this point in time, we lock all the fire exits and no one leaves until they give us £100 each. They are, they are £16,500 each. That's how expensive it is to get to Antarctica. It's a good thing because we don't want Antarctica ending up like Everest. Uh, queuing at the pole and things like that. So it is a good thing, but we are still fundraising for, for our flights. We're going whatever. When we get there, we may just have to wash dishes for quite some time in order to earn our flights home. Yeah, so we're still going. Okay, next slide. So we're just going to finish off now with our Fire Angel Foundation, or FAF, which I think is appropriate because most men think we FAF quite a lot. And uh, so we're, we're going to drop off Antarctic uh, Fire Angels and have our Fire Angel Foundation. And I'll just quickly go through it because now Sarah's scowling at me for going over time. So um, when we come back, we'll be setting up our FAF, and uh, basically it's where we take um, uh, teenage girls, young women, older women, and we give them a snippet of what we've had the privilege to experience over the last four years. So we work with them for about three months. Uh, we're starting with fire cadets, so we're starting with our, with, our, with our own at the moment, just so we can get it up and running and things and then we give them a three-month program and then we take them out to either Finsa, which is where we did our, our upon harder gavida our training or, or sweden so it's a very safe environment but they will think they're in the middle of nowhere and there is no google there there is no wi-fi there's no internet but the reality is they're only about five miles away from a very luxurious hotel but they won't know that and it's about building their self-esteem their confidence decision making and having fun and 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 they will learn how to support each other because if there's one thing that women are good at and that is supporting each other women supporting wi other, other women and they will learn to do that from a from a young age because unfortunately we don't get to learn how to do that until we need it in the workplace so hopefully they will take that on board and learn how to do it whilst they're teenagers in that very, very slim window that we have when we lose them to social media and their with the way that they look and their appearance and everything. So that's what we'll be setting up when, when we come back. And, and that is it. I'm going to finish there, I think. That's the last slide. Okay, there's just a few snapshots on there. So just scroll through those just quickly, if that's okay. So, and we've got a new partnership with Girl Guiding as well. We're super excited about. Yeah, they're going to do a challenge badge for us. Fire Angel Challenge badge. So that's that's something we're really, really excited about. And and that is it. Anything to add? No. <laughs> 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 
So many have said that we should do some sort of like podcast or something. <laughs> yeah, but it wouldn't be age appropriate. So uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Hello, everybody. I'm Hazel Conley, and I'm a professor of human resource management. And I have a nervous breakdown if the um, if the central heating breaks. So <laughs> I can't imagine what it it would be like there doing doing that those marvelous things. To be honest. So my research is um, broadly about equality and diversity and inclusion in the workplace, more specifically about improving the working lives of the almost 16 million working women in this country. I'm particularly interested in equal pay, uh, but I've also done quite a lot of research around sexual harassment and sexual discrimination. So. I was the first person in my family to go to university. Um, in fact, I was the first person to um, have any academic qualification at all. And um, I didn't do my degree until I was 33 years old. I didn't start my degree until I was 33 years old. And um, before that, I worked in a bank for 13 years. And my father was like really pleased that I'd got what he called a good, clean job because I was not only the first person to go out to university, I was also the first person in my family not to work in a factory. So, um, uh, so he was really pleased that I'd got this good, clean job. But actually, the, the reality of working in a bank was not that good for me. So in 13 years, I got one very minor promotion, and um, I was sexually harassed. And I think probably... Reality hit home for me when, um, uh, in the 19... Yeah, so in, in, in the 1980s, the Financial Services Act kicked in, which meant that anybody who sold financial services in a bank had to pass an examination. And like I say, reality really hit home for me at that point because I passed the exam, I think, with 97% and the bank manager failed the exam. So I think it was at that point that I realised that something was wrong and um, I decided to look for a new career. So I decided that I wanted to go back to uh, higher education because when I worked in the bank, the only thing that I ever really wanted to do was be a personnel manager. That was the height of my ambition to become a personnel manager in a bank. But I couldn't, I couldn't get to be a personnel manager in a bank. I couldn't get out of a branch, to be honest. So I decided to come back to university, and here I am now, years later, a professor of human resource management. So I've, um, I managed to pass my my degree with a double first. I then went on to do a master's degree and then a PhD and did a postdoc at Cardiff University, came to work at UWE, then went to work at Queen Mary University of London where I got a readership, and then I came back to UWE as a professor, some, I think, about seven years ago now. So that's me, but I think my experience of working in the bank is what shaped my desire to do the research that I do now, to understand what happens to women when they're in the world of work and they encounter these things. And I was just talking to Barbara before about how it's amazing that you when, you, when I came back into higher education and I started to read all of these theories about 
gender segregation, pay discrimination, sexual harassment. I think, oh my God, that's what they call it. That's how it happens. So I think actually my own experiences of the workplace what shaped what I wanted to do in, in, in higher education. And since then, I've gone on to do research around equal pay. And I just worked on an almost million pound project that was looking at the history of the gender, the gender equality legislation in the UK with colleagues at Edinburgh University and University College London. And as part of that research, I, I actually started to research some very famous women who worked in a fa factory. Lots of you may have seen the film, the Ford Dagenham, the women who worked in the Ford Dagenham factory. So I did some uh, in-depth research on their job evaluation scheme and exactly why they were paid so much less than the men and how that was justified. Uh, and it was quite amazing that all of those years ago, 1968, that a lot of the problems that exist around um, stereotypes, the idea that women can't do the kind of things that men do, um, and that they should be therefore be paid less, those, still, those things that started in 1968, when it was quite legal at that time to pay women different, very different rates of men, even when they were doing the same job, they could be paid um, very differently just because they were women. It's hard to think about that now. But actually, those things still exist, and I'm sure that lots of you will have heard about what's happened in Birmingham City Council. So Birmingham City Council has, has basically had to declare bankruptcy because they didn't do their job evaluation properly, and women that worked in their council, very low-paid women, were um, basically... Um, undervalued for many years and the council has had to pay lots of back pay to those women so much so that the council has actually been bankrupted which actually kind of indicates that the second city the second largest city in this country could not function without exploiting the lowest paid women that work for them which actually this is how many years after? This is 50 years after we had equal pay legislation and we've still got those problems. So that's a little bit about my research. I think it's not all bad though, actually, because in my job, I actually get to read some fantastic research. And one of the pieces of fantastic research that I've read in the past is by Dr. Barbara Brown, who we're going to have a uh, hear from shortly because I examined Barbara's thesis which was just an amazing piece of work and it was about sex discrimination in the fire service so I think that's all I want to say now if I can hand over to Barbara yeah it's brilliant thank you good evening um, I, I am not going to leave what I need to say to chance. I am menopausal. I do forget my name and my children's names. So if you please bear with me, I'm going to read uh, what I'm going to say simply because it feels too important not to. Okay, so can I try without this? And then if it doesn't work, then I'll pick it up. So my experience of gender equality has been one of personal journey and practice that seeks to identify 
disrupt, interrupt, and plan against gender in, uh, patterns of gender inequity. I've also advocated on behalf of women whose voices are seldom heard in the spaces that I occupy. Significantly, I've worked in male-dominated spaces where history and pathology has been male. My work has navigated the belief that gender inequality presents as a cultural premise which is perpetuated mainly by men. It would be helpful if it were that simple. The barriers experienced by women within organisations are complex. I would like in the short time that I have with you just to leave you with a few simple thoughts to reflect on. My context is that I worked in and within the fire service for over a decade and a half, so I feel your pain, but also your joy. <laughs> but it was also my privilege to conduct research with women firefighters and women leaders from across the whole of England. Whilst employed, my role was of a senior nature and took on a regional, national and international premise, as well as my local duties. So I understand working in male-dominated spaces. I also understand working in white spaces. That's a different story for another day. My working life outside the fire service has taken me to work with global organisations, health leaderships, charities, finance sector, private schools, women's charities, health leadership. The dominance of men within leadership has been a familiar story. The organisation of and response to gender equity, whilst well-meaning, has primarily been the same, limited with little understanding of what's needed to uh, create significant change. Interestingly, when working in leadership spaces predominantly occupied by women, the journey may have looked different on the surface, but the navigation has been of a similar nature. But as we say in my friendship group, that's a whole other show. My point is that it is important to talk to the structural nature of gender inequity rather than who it enables, because who, it, who enables it can be divisive and misleading. The structural nature of gender inequity is such that it usually fails to recognise the differing needs of women at systemic and cultural le level. There is a question of how women operate, how they survive and navigate their working environments when socialised and institutionalised within majority male organisations. This is the thing that needs to be further understood and considered. We don't just want women and girls to cross the threshold into traditionally male-dominated spaces, but we want them to stay there. We don't want them to stay there in ways that enable them to fulfil their potential and optimise their talent. We also need to recognise this simple fact. Gender inequity is the organisation's burden to understand, to unravel and dismantle. It cannot be relegated to problematising one individual or group of individuals who we hope will fall in line or whose voices can be quieted. Neither should it be the responsibility of women's networks to try and find the answer to organisational inadequacies. Last week, I was in conversation with a global provider who was in contract with a large UK police force. My challenge to them was to join the dots between the attrition rates of newly recruited women officers and the women's placement experiences. The discrepancy between 
the stated policy and procedures and the realities of the culture that the women had been teleported into spoke of discriminatory experiences which were stark for some of them. Understanding and centralizing women's experiences against the realities of organizational culture is one way of getting beneath the carpet of how or the organization is experienced from the viewpoint of gender. When I joined the fire service, the representation of operational women was below 2% nationally. And although at that time, some women would have been completing nearly 30 years of service, there was no operational women beyond a supervisory role. When I embarked on my national research into gender inequity in the fire service in 2015, the percentile had only moved by 2%. This is some 15 years after gender targets have been introduced. Anecdotal evidence suggests that women's experience were hidden or not being considered. When women joined the fire and rescue service, in the main they stayed there, they didn't leave their jobs. So the obvious question not being asked was, what's happening beneath the surface? So regardless of policy intention, strategic planning, organizational targets, stated commitments, it is organizational culture that often gets missed in the mix of what is meaningful and what measurable change and sustainable change looks like for women. It's the day-to-day -day language, it's the activity, it's the behavior, how decisions are made, who makes them, it's a historical footprint on the present environment, it's what is accepted as normality and the unspoken resistance that keeps women on the outside, although part of the organization. When I left my role in the fire service, there was unfinished business for me. This was about how, despite progress in the governance of uh, fire and rescue services nationwide, despite the audit measures which required the triangulation of evidence of what fire services were doing to progress equality, despite the refinement of recruitment processes, despite the replacement of rank with role and the presence of some women in leadership positions. Being on the inside, I understood that the experience of being a woman in a fire service was fraught with detriment. There was something about the way that the service was organized, its culture, its fundamental and overriding belief that system that appeared to be circumventing foundational and meaningful change which positively impacted women. And the fire service isn't alone in that. I have operated in predominantly male spaces and there has been an element of objectivity that I have learned. Being an outsider for me has been helpful in terms of my knowledge and reflection. My personal and professional journey is one that I've come to describe as occupying the marginal space, or as Bell Hooks suggests, being in the margin. Today, whilst we acknowledge that there's a lot of work to do to continue to advocate for organizational and structural systemic change for women, I would like to take a moment to encourage women or women uh, who work in gender challenged environments or are considering that, to consider the margin the space on the outside inside as a place of radical strength and liberation. So Bell Hooks puts it this way, and I quote, to be in the margin is to be part of the whole but outside of the main body. On the edge, 
we develop a particular way of seeing reality. We look both from the outside in and from the inside out. We focus our attention on the centre as well as on the margin. We understand both. It is true that I have not paid attention to how I've existed within the cultural centre of an organisation. The cultural centre being how decisions are made, behaviours, activities, the things that I've talked about, language, how uh, organisations omit things, how they progress things, their successes. Without intention or preparation, I've stepped into a cultural centre of an organisation, quickly realising that I did not have the equipment that I needed to manage particular environments that were not structured for women to be in. The work to understand these environments and to survive it has been at times more challenging than the work that I've been brought in to do. So consider with me the margin as you having a blueprint of a house. You have sight of the plan of the house. There is clarity as to where the rooms are, what's on the right, what's on the left, what the lighting looks like. However, once you leave the blueprint, you enter the building, the experience of the building changes because now there's furniture to navigate. There are building modifications that you did not know about. Everything has changed. But stepping back to the margin or the blueprint can reinforce what you know, create respite, and help you understand what is happening within the building or for our purposes within the cultural center. For me, being able to shift my attention and my focus from being overwhelmed by the everyday experience of my organization's culture to the what's happening here question has taken me out of what I felt back to what do I know? And it's the what do I know that's the margin. The margin position of what do I know has helped me think about what I've needed in any given environment, helping me to become clearer and less depleted. It's become transformational in my gender and racial equality journey. So imagine this. Imagine creating a space in the margin to detach from cultural distractions and consider what support I might need, you might need, without apology. Imagine a daily personal practice which does not only help us gain clarity, but supports us in our understanding of what is the organisational burden to take unapologetically, that's actually a game changer. So whilst we wait for structures to change, as they are, but lurchingly, I urge us to remember that there is strength in holding insider-outsider status. So let us hold the margin until the margin is no longer necessary. Genuinely not sure I can follow any of that because uh, you said it all really. But um, <clears throat> I want to just start by reflecting on what you said, Barbara, because I, I, I think, um, particularly as a chief people officer in my last two roles, that uh, we have a responsibility to scrutinise how the house is built and start dismantling it and rebuilding it uh, in a more just way than it is. And I think unless we um, start to look at um, those foundations uh, and the 
um, you know, the, the, the concrete between the bricks and start to really understand what's going on and why and then act on it with accountability. Um, you know, we will continue to live in a, a gender uh, unjust and unequal society and that's, that's really not good enough for, for me. It's not good enough for any of us. It holds back, I think, um, the uh, enormous talent uh, that exists in, and the enormous potential that exists in our country. And I think that um, that's, that's a tragedy that we, we need to own up to and take some responsibility for. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm glad that you've all challenged us and brought your insight and wisdom and your experiences to bear. What I would say from my own experience of um, uh, looking at these issues in, in organisations is that um, I think that not enough attention is paid to uh, looking at the, the disparities in the data, understanding what's going on. So it shocked me a number of times working in um, large institutions that there isn't a clear picture often. There isn't a clear then ownership of the experiences that drive the data uh, in terms of uh, here, both staff, student and, uh, staff experience and student experience. And it's underneath that data that the culture plays out and that the processes and the systemic practices that perpetuate the sorts of injustices we've heard about happen. And unless someone owns those things and cares about them and plays, pays attention to them as part of core business uh, every day, they will not change. Uh, they're stubborn and they're persistent otherwise. And I think that's a responsibility for uh, senior leaders, whomever they may be. And I think it's a responsibility for uh, all of us uh, to care about and do something about in terms of what's within our responsibility and our, our, our gift to act. So um, I would say that uh, it's really, really important to shine a light on the data. It's really, really important to listen to lived experience. And then in terms of seeking solutions, um, not to take a, uh, an impositional approach, a prescriptive approach, um, but actually to co-design and co-create uh, women understand their lives and I think it's really really important that they are in the center of shaping solutions uh, to redesigning uh, the, the the house and the, uh, the, the the foundations upon which it stands and I think that that's what we have to do as leaders to create spaces in which the, the, um, it's safe to do that to challenge um, but also to listen uh, and to uh, be unafraid to, to call out the things that are wrong and problematic. I hear a lot in organisations, and just in this month especially, Black History Month, I've been talking a lot about what it's like to be racially minoritised and listening to people's experiences. Um, and you know, very often I think that uh, people who experience that feel that they are not listened to and that there's a denial of their experience. Uh, and I think that we have to overcome that denialism by accepting and acknowledging uh, where problems exist. It's not until that we uh, really see those problems uh, in all their starkness that we can actually work out how to tackle them. Uh, and that must be a job that's done together. Um, so uh, to me, leadership drives culture and that has to come with a sense of responsibility and accountability. And there has to be uh, consequences that flow from uh, those leadership responsibilities and I think unless we spell out very clearly the expectations top to bottom in organi organizations um, uh, for changing the sorts of inequality and injustice that we've talked about uh, frankly it will be slow and things will uh, be um, you know laggardly in respect of how quickly they change and that as I say uh, cannot be good enough uh, in 2023 and in in modern Britain and in organizations that um, 
you know, uh, shape the future, especially organizations like higher education, uh, where actually we are um, responsible for uh, educating um, future generations and future leaders. It seems to me absolutely integral uh, and a matter of um, uh, critical importance that that's fundamental to our mission, actually. Um, and therefore, uh, when we talk about um, you know, gender equality, we need to look at that through the lens of our curriculum as much as we need to look at it through our systems and practices organizationally. We need to look at how we're uh, addressing barriers that people experience, but also how we're building up uh, in the context of our existing systemic um, uh, difficulties, how we're building up the uh, support and resilience around, uh, around women to navigate those difficult spaces, how are we providing safe spaces uh, and support um, and, and opportunities for women to come together. And I think that's incumbent upon uh, all of us as leaders. I've been uh, really privileged to um, belong to uh, organizations that have made some progress as well, but that have within them deep challenges. So we talked about um, policing and even in Somerset Police, it's the only police force I think still in the country that has the two uh, top roles in terms of the chief constable and the deputy chief constable. It has an assistant chief constable. It has a, a chief officer for people and organizational development, all roles held by women. Um, and that's happened in very recent times. And at every level then in the senior management team, we're seeing quite a lot of change in terms of the level of representation of women. And those women are uh, reshaping the culture of the organization. I know we've got colleagues here uh, tonight from, from that service. And we see... Um, we see that beginning to play out in terms of what the data is saying around staff survey experiences on inclusion and so on. Um, but I think it's really, really important that we get behind uh, those leaders and that we support them um, to uh, build the kind of organizations that you know, we, we ought to be proud of rather than uh, some of the um, you know, shameful examples that we see having played out in the Casey report, having um, seen the um, the, the report from Nazir Afsal, which I mentioned earlier, those, those are just, um, you know, I think they're barbaric examples of uh, when things go wrong in organizations and when leadership and culture fails. And I think it's really, really important that uh, we, we really lean into solving the, the issues that are very well articulated in those reports. We don't need another report to tell us uh, what's wrong and why it's gone wrong. We simply need to uh, listen to what that's telling us, accept what it says, and then act on it uh, to change, uh, to change the, uh, the examples of bad, bad practice, bad conduct, bad behavior, and bad culture that they, uh, they illustrate. Um, so I would say, uh, as well as um, data and lived experience, let's um, make sure that there are opportunities for uh, visible role modeling. And I love the example uh, of our colleagues from the fire service today, but we need to give you platforms. We need to make sure that you know, you're you, you have um, the invitation and the space to uh, come and talk uh, in, in many more environments. I mean, you're talking about goal guiding. I used to be um, the international commissioner in the Scouts, and that's an organization, again, that has changed a great deal in recent times. Um, but there's so much more to do. And I, I can just imagine your story reaching out to uh, girls and young women, uh, of which there are nearly 600,000 young people in, in, in Scouts that... Uh, hopefully might be part of your journey. So I'd love to make that introduction for you. Uh, similarly with the National Fire Chiefs Council, um, I'd love to uh, find an opportunity for, for you to come and speak with us if you do the honor of um, challenging uh, that, that group to think about the issues that you've described, because I really think they need to. Um, and I sit around and listen to, 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 to the sort of leadership and challenges that they're facing. I'm pleased to say that um, 
there are uh, you know, senior firefighters, uh, women firefighters that are joining that board uh, and challenging uh, what that culture plan needs to be for the fire service. But it's, uh, it's not fast enough. Um, and at the moment, it's simply uh, not going hard enough at the issues. And I'd, I'd love to bring uh, you along if you'd be good enough to, to join me into some of those um, d discussions. I think that would be so important. Um, I, I think uh, the, the last couple of things I'd say is here in Yui, um, so I was struck when I came here in February at the uh, values, the stated values, and I, I think it's important to say stated or espoused values. And I've said this a few times in uh, introductory and other videos, um, but uh, the stated values are not the lived values. Um, and until they are, we, we absolutely cannot rest. So we talk about inclusivity as being one of our core values. Um, but I notice those disparities of experience playing out for minoritized groups, for women, uh, for disabled um, individuals, for um, black and minoritized um, ethnic um, uh, individuals, right across our staff journey and our student journey. And I think um, that we have to face that reality, uh, all of us at every level, and understand what's going on and then do something about it. So, um, you know, uh, stated values, espoused values, values that are painted on walls are simply not good enough lived values are uh, what we need to, to bring about. And I think that that will entail uh, leadership and responsibility and accountability at every level to do that. So while I'm here, it will be a priority of mine uh, to uh, make sure um, that that is central to our people strategy, to our core business strategy as an organization. Uh, and I will be speaking about it whenever I have the opportunity at the board level and at the exec level, and I'll be hopefully um, uh, giving up sometimes the platform that's offered to me for others uh, who have those direct lived experiences to come and speak for themselves, um, because I think it's really important to hear it firsthand. So, yeah, I know what it's like to be, uh, to have, uh, to, to be discriminated against um, as a gay man in particular. Uh, there are many examples throughout my life when uh, I've experienced discrimination, but I also know what it's like to have privilege, to have white privilege, um, to be a man. Uh, and I know uh, that um, you know, those things can bring about a blindness uh, and us you know, unable to see and unable to act upon the things that we take for granted. And I think we need education and learning uh, about um, opening our eyes in relation to um, you know, the privileges that, that we enjoy that others might not. Um, that we, uh, you know, we have to be aware of and, and, and understand. So I think there's a lot to do around uh, education and learning as well in this space. Um, so I'll just wrap up because I'm in my last minute. I've mentioned a, a range of different things there, I think, that touch on uh, the themes and examples that others have said. But I, I would just say, uh, really, I've learned a great deal by listening to um, our wonderful speakers uh, this evening as well. And uh, I'm really looking forward to the panel discussion that we might have and drawing from the insight that perhaps there is in the, the wider audience as well. So thank you. Thanks a million. Thank you very much. Um, it's over to you now. Uh, what questions do you want to pose to any of the speakers about any of the things that they said? Or what else do you want to ask while you have the opportunity of having these, these people here? So we have a roving mic, so it'll be passed around for anybody who wants to ask something. Yeah, go for it. Hi, thank you. Um, great to hear from all of you. 
Um, I've got three questions actually for you, Bex, 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 and Georgia. <laughs> Um, so take your pick or all of them if you can. So firstly, would you come back and would you be host you after you've done your expedition? Be great to hear how it went. Uh, definitely. I mean, I think that's, you know, the biggest thing for us is, like we said, you know, that's just the attention grab of what we're doing and we'd love to tell, we love talking and we'd love to tell our story when we come back and to actually say, well, we thought it was going to be like this, but actually when we came back, we, the experience we had was this. So, yeah, we absolutely love to come back and, and tell you how it went. Brilliant. Um, what do your firefighting colleagues think and say about what you're doing? <laughs> Male ones, I mean. Uh, uh, so, the, the, the first response, well, four years, we've been planning it for four years, because uh, it takes that long to plan something like this. So, the first one was, uh, well, where's the men's teams? Um, so then I said, well, if you this is a women's team, um, but if you want a hand planning a men's team, I'm more than happy to give you a hand with that. No, you're right. And that that's that was the normal response from from most of my most of my colleagues, and they basically saw it like cake, like we were getting something more than them. So which is very very common theme around EDI. Um, but now uh, going through, uh, because obviously there's doubt um, as to whether it's going to happen, and you know we've had team members come and go and things like that. But now we're in the final throws, and I think in the last 12 months, people, our colleagues, have actually sat up and, and, and thought to themselves, "Oh my God, they are actually doing this," and and they've come forward and said, "You know, how can we support you?" and, and things like that. So our immediate colleagues have been very supportive, and it's been a very uh, a, a small minority that have ha that have gone. What about me? You know, I want to do stuff like that. What if I'm I'm a white male? What if I go and want to go and trek Hadrian's Wall? But it's like, well, go and ask the boss then, because that's what I did, and uh, and things. And then, and it comes down to support as well. So our both our fire services have, are supporting us 100%. Um, so we are off from the 1st of November to the 31st of January, and it gives us that window should anything go wrong and uh, god forbid anything goes wrong um and they are supporting us fully for that with with leave and it's paid as well and so we you know we didn't broadcast that or anything did we at all because um because we knew there would be pushback from that and rightly so i mean and you know as anticipated there was some pushback from colleagues and that was the response what if i want to go and do something like this well there is no policy on it um uh, they, they don't write a policy on it deliberately because everything is done case by case. And again, if you want a hand going to go and plan your adventure, then they will look at it and assess it and see, you know, if you warrant, you know, having all that time off and et cetera, et cetera. And it's not until you start explaining it that, that in layman's terms that they start to realise, oh, right, okay, I see the benefit in that. And the first thing you do is you pull it back to their kill, th their children. Most of them have daughters, um, and you go, you know, wouldn't want, you, wouldn't you want your daughter to grow up in a world where they feel empowered to go and do these things? Don't you want to do that for your daughter? And as soon as you make them feel included in the in the narrative, they change. And it's about it's it's like the protected characteristics. As soon as you brought in protected characteristics, everyone felt included, and it's like, oh yeah, well I've got one of those. You know, and then they, they they didn't feel like it was like cake. So it's quite complex because as women, we don't like to say, we, we like to go, you know, do you want to support us? But you don't have to. You know, we like to put that little caveat on, on the end. And that's what it's been like for, for the last couple of years, really.
Thank you. Can I have another question? Yeah, one more. Thank you. Um, so you've both articulated really clearly the, um, the reason why you've done this in kind of general terms. I wanted to ask you each, what was the pivotal moment for you to commit to this? You said it was four years ago. That's a massive commitment. Can you pinpoint the, the moment or the thought or the decision why you decided, yes, I'm going to do this? Uh, for me, it was when I was listening to another woman um, about women supporting women, and they'd taken a British army team to Antarctica, and she was speaking um, about female empowerment and the imagery. I live in pictures quite a lot, and the imagery that she had and the narrative that she had, and it was all about women supporting women, and that was my click moment. And I, no, I wasn't. I, no alcohol had been consumed at this point. <laughs> that was my click moment, definitely. Um, I think, well, selfishly for me, uh, when I found out about this challenge um, and I was asked to do it, I thought, wow, I was looking, I just kind of retired from high level sport and I was actually looking for, you know, f a bit in the wasteland wondering what I'm going to do. Um, and this challenge came up and I thought, wow, another challenge, awesome, I'm in. Um, and then obviously once, you know, once I got the understanding of why we're doing it and the female empowerment and, you know, especially being in a male-dominated job. And I'd spent a lot of time in male-dominated sports coming from rugby. Um, I just thought, wow, this is this is brilliant. You know, this is, is something that we can, you know, one, I can really get my teeth into, challenge myself. This is probably going to be the biggest challenge I've ever had. But also, we've got this awesome message and hopefully we can build a platform to, tr to try and get it out there and, you know, and push it past our friends and family and, you know, small networks. Um, so, yeah, I think that was right at the beginning, really, isn't it? You know, we, this has been four years, so it was right at the beginning, really, of when we were, when I was kind of deciding whether, you know, whether to do it or not, although it didn't take me long, probably a couple of seconds to say yes. Although I will say that right at the beginning, four years ago, I didn't quite really um, understand or realise the amount of work and time. And um, basically, it, this has been another full-time job on top of another full-time job. <laughs> Um, and there's lots of things we probably would have done differently if we'd had our time again, I would have thought, over the last four years. But, um, yeah, it's been brilliant. And a roller coaster, isn't it, George? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, got a question here. How long are you going to be there for? Um, we plan to take about 45 days to do our expedition, but it really depends on weather. So if we've got terrible storms or terrible weather, we might have to stay in our tent for sometimes up to a week if it's a really bad storm and a weather, bad weather system. Uh, so that could make it longer. Also depends on how fast we're moving. Um, and if we, you know, if we if we get injured or ill or sick, then that might uh, make it a bit longer. So we're roughly thinking about 45 days, which means we have to travel for 25 kilometers every single day in order to to make it in 45 days okay thank you anybody else a question over here okay. uh, can you hear me okay you can't yeah uh, i was just fascinated by your commitment both of you I gather you've been working in lots of primary schools and so forth, but I wanted to ask you two very quick questions. Number one is, from the point of view of your own families, the people who love you and care for you, you didn't mention about the risk issues that you're putting yourself on the line, because I won't go into great detail, but I talked personally to a guy called uh, 
Clayton Cool, who's been up Mount Everest more times than most. He lives up in Sirencester. And I did say to him, whilst you're doing something very, very worthwhile, like you two are, I think you are putting yourselves on the line, uh, um, I said, what about your children? He's got two young children and a wife. And he goes off and he's been... So nothing was mentioned about the risk that you're taking. Are you prepared to just share that with me if you have the foreknowledge? Because I recognise the unknown factor in any environment. Yeah, so the risk is great. It's Antarctica at, at the end of the day. Um, and actually, more people have successfully rode the Atlantic than, than people who have crossed, the, uh, at the, crossed Antarctica. But also, it, it, this isn't the um, historical age of exploration. We have moved uh, along uh, a long way. So although the, the risk is quite high, the risk is actually not succeeding in it. It's not, uh, not successfully completing the traverse. So although there is, there is risk, and the risk is mitigated by our training, you could put all the insurance in place and everything like that, but if you don't have, the, don't have that training, and if you don't have that routine, that routine keeps you very, very safe, um, then, then the risk is obviously increases every time you forget that, that routine and all that training and all those building blocks that you've put in. So as I said, the more people have crossed successfully the Atlantic than, than, than crossed Antarctica, and that's due to, yes, the Atlantic is extremely remote, but Antarctica is even more remote. You can pick Antarctica up and pl uh, plop it on top of the whole of Europe, and there is still room for another country in there. That's how big it is. But because technology has moved on since Scott and Shackleton and all of those, all of those historical characters, um, we, we offset that risk by taking equipment with us so we can communicate. So the company that flies us out there is called Antarctic Logistics and Expeditions. And um, they won't, will not let you on the ice until one, you've qualified to do so. And secondly, you have all these items of, e of, of equipment. That's not to say that something could go wrong. Um, one of us could fall. I mean, it's, it's ice with sastrugi at the end of the day. We could fall, twist, break anything, cut anything. But then all your training kicks in. And as firefighters as well, uh, your training kicks in in an emergency. And you, you click into a, a, almost like a, another, a very reactive personality on how you limit the... Um, the consequences of that accident should it should it happen in the first place. So um, just to give you um, an insight of the equipment that we take, so we take two satellite phones. Um, they're all uh, preloaded with satellite minutes, which costs about five pound a minute, which we're also fundraising for. <laughs> um, uh, we take a Garmin um, Garmin InReach Mini, which is um, a, locate, a locating beacon. And we take another Garmin unit, which is a larger naving unit uh, called a 66i. So that is constantly pinging our location. So we can set that to ping our location every um, 60 seconds if we want to. But we'll, because, again, that costs money, um, we'll, it pings every 10 minutes of where our location is. ALE are then back at Union Glacier, and they are back in Punta Arenas as well, where they have another base. And... Even if we had a doctor in the team, that doctor is not permitted to make uh, medical decisions on behalf of the team because they get what's called summit fever. Summit fever is something that actually um, you will try and make yourself do or make yourself do your team to it in order to succeed. And it's why people uh, perish quite a lot on Everest as well. They get, the su they get a summit fever even though they cannot go on. So we, we have a conversation with them every single day and that's weather reports, that's condition of the team, 
and any um, any uh, issues that we've got going on as a, as a team, illnesses, symptoms, uh, all sorts of things like that. Also, um, because everything is uh, works off the Iridium uh, satellite system, um, we basically they, they they track us. So if they don't hear from us for any particular reason, if the weather is bad, they will give us the benefit of the doubt. But in, if they haven't heard from us in 36 hours and the weather is good, um, but we've been stationary because they know exactly where we are, they will automatically come and take us off the ice regardless. So even if we've just gone, um, if we were both menopausal and forgotten to check in, um, <laughs> hopefully, I'm menopausal, Bex isn't, so hopefully she'll remember at some point to check in. Yeah, hope. Yeah, this is, she's not eating my food. Um, and um, so she, we will check in. And if, but if we don't check in and the weather's good and we've not moved anywhere, they will automatically just come remove us. And uh, kicking and screaming probably because we've just forgotten. But that's what your training and your drilling does. And, you know, coming from a very disciplined service, that it, it's, it's a very, very natural crossover between the two. I won't ask you another, a second question. It's just that you've reassured us that you're not actually alone then. That was the issue for me, that uh, you're not just going off, despite all of your worthy training, and you look very fit and very, uh, I would say, capable. And so, But you're not alone, and that's very reassuring for people who would care for you dearly personally, but also maybe people in this audience. So well done. It's good stuff. Thank you. Thanks. We've got another question. OK. We'll take two more questions. We'll take yours, and we'll take one other if anybody's got one after. Okay. Hello. Um, it was picking up on a point that um, Barbara made, actually. Um, myself and Carla smiled to ourselves when um, you mentioned about it shouldn't be for the networks to drive a lot of this cultural change within, within an organisation. So um, I work within Defence, a very male-dominated area, um, and I also lead the Women's Network. So we are often faced with um, questions from seniors of what do we need to do, what do we need to do to change, and uh, we feel a little bit like we're preaching to the choir sometimes, as a lot of people come to our events um, and everybody there is in agreement and they're nodding along, but how do we get out into the organisation? And that's the key thing that we're struggling to do is to drive that cultural change um, on a broader scale of the people that won't come to the events or are disengaged or not interested. So I think sort of the question for yourself or for Hazel is, you know, what would you say is the biggest things that an organisation can do or how do we drive that change um, without preaching to the choir to the people that already know, um, how, d how do we get our reach out further? Sure. Um, I guess, first of all, it isn't for the network to be driving change. I guess the, you know, there are certain components around uh, strategic intent that have to um, translate into activity. So, what is the what is it gonna what does gender equality look like within the organization what are what are the commitments what are the building blocks to change how does that translate into a plan then how do we know what does it look like so the you know one of the one of the really clear indicators is around leadership so how have leadership committed to it um, and how does the organisation know? What does it translate to? So first of all, um, I would be having the conversation within the, the setting of the organisation looking at, so what are the objectives, gender equity objectives, um, 
how does that translate into departmental plans? How does that then translate into um, the organisation understanding what gender equality is and looks like? And then what's my responsibility around it? The network really should be there as a safe space, as a cons consultative arm, and to, you know, broadcast good practice, I guess. You shouldn't be there making decisions about what happens next. You should be consulted on it, and your experiences should be centralised, but you shouldn't be the driving force of cultural change, because cultural change is a lot, you know, is, is the how decisions are made, it's the governance of the organisation, it's uh, code of conduct, it's, it's all kinds of things. I guess, Dan, do you want to say? Or, or or hey, I think Hazel wanted to add something there. Yeah, first of all, I just wanted to say to... The, the M32 is pretty dangerous as well, you know. In relation to that question, though, uh, I think I study equal pay. So I think my message for the organisation would be put your money where your mouth is, basically. Yeah. So, yeah, that's... Dan, did you want to... I think others have said it better than I can again, but um, it, it strikes me that you know the organisation has to uh, own it from the top down under every level, and um, you know it, it is as you rightly described not not the responsibility of those that are most affected to do the heavy lifting and to solve it. And until there's an acknowledgement of that from the most senior leadership in the organisation, I think it's very very difficult to bring about the sort of change that's being described and. Um, you know, uh, that burden shouldn't fall to you. I don't think that is the responsibility of the network. I think it's been very well described by Barbara in terms of what the distinctive responsibilities for both leadership and network should be. I fully support what you said. Thank and you. finally, I'd say, start with requesting an audit. So what do our needs look like? And how can we plan to support what needs to change? That's a starting point, because if you don't, if the organisation hasn't really fathomed what gender equality should be then you know what it's doing is this kind of you know it, it's that sporadic thing in that we're going to try everything something must stick but actually it's not contextual to who we are it's not contextual to the cultural uh, realities um, and the way that we do business here it has to be that it can't be cut and paste it has to be kind of around what are the essential needs and building blocks of this organisation. Yeah, sorry to just go back in as well, is what um, was mentioned earlier as well about those kind of lived values, I've written down somewhere, mm. or stated values, yeah. We hear a lot of that, it's a priority, diversity, inclusion, and it, it's, all, it's all a priority, but it's the first thing to drop off as soon as things get busy or, you know, it's the first thing that goes, so yeah. No, that's okay. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks. Okay, um, we will leave it there um, because we could probably talk all night, but it's time to stop. Um, please do reach out to me if you're interested in continuing this conversation because obviously um, it's a, a topic of interest for my research. Um, I've got a few thank yous. Um, so thank you all for coming and for your questions for the panel. Huge thanks to all of our speakers. Um, and also to the events team who are sat at the back and at the front who are doing all of their behind the scenes work uh, for us as well. So um, to the Antarctic Fire Angels, uh, all the best for your expedition. We will be following you every step of the way.